Welcome to Fraud Talk. This is Mandy Moody, the communications manager here at the ACFE. And I am excited to be joined by Martin Kenny today. Uh, Martin, welcome. Hello. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Martin is actually no stranger to the ACFE. He won the Cressy Award five years ago, I believe. And he is someone who we have always had a lot of respect for uh, with his efforts in asset recovery. I'm going to give a little recap to give listeners a little insight into who you are. So one of the world's leading asset recovery lawyers ranked number one in asset recovery in the offshore world by Who's Who Legal International for, I think, the third year in a row. The media has called you one of the sharpest fraud busters in the world and the top international asset chaser. So those are all great introductions. Thank you. Yes, some people have said some kind things about uh, my work. Yeah, I think our, our favorite was one of the sharpest fraud busters. That is directed to my whole team. Okay. Uh, that was from Wired Magazine, and they were talking about the whole team that I attempt to lead. Yeah, that's true. You've got a whole team in the British Virgin Islands, and kind of tell our listeners a little bit about you and your team and what you guys do every day. Well, we represent the interests of the victims of global economic crime in some of the world's most complex and challenging cases, normally involving a number of victims, sometimes thousands of people, or large companies, or even sovereign governments, um, when they are visited by some form of dishonest behavior, fraud, breach of fiduciary duty, that's dishonest, a complicated scheme to trick people out of their money or to breach their trust. So our job is to try and find assets which have been stolen from clients to, uh, and then gather evidence of the relation between those assets and the wrongdoers or the wrongdoing, and then swoop down suddenly, uh, secretly, with court orders around the world to freeze those assets that we find and have a big row or fight over all of that with the other side and then try and recover and liquidate those assets to cash for our clients. That's a good synopsis. And you've been doing this work a long time, but I was curious to know how you initially got started into this and when you first knew that this is what you wanted to do. I can, I bet our listeners can tell that you are a proud Canadian. So tell me how you ended up where you are now. Well, I first became a, a, a lawyer in British Columbia, Canada in 1984. I had articled, which means interned. In Canada, you don't have um, the honor of being a lawyer until you've practiced for a year under the supervision of a senior lawyer. That's called articling, articling, or a doctor might in America, internship. And um, so I did my articles with the Ministry of the Attorney General in Victoria, British Columbia. And I was taught uh, uh, criminal prosecution work, uh, securities fraud, uh, investigation and injunctive relief to stop bad issuers of securities on the Vancouver Stock Exchange from doing peddling their rubbish to investors. I learned about mining leases and oil and gas leases in northern British Columbia. 
a lot of different things. And mm-hmm. I, deci- I decided to take a job with one of Canada's wealthiest families that offered me a job to work in their offices in America. And I did that for seven years. And I learned an awful lot about corporate law, taxation, financial accounting, and the rudiments of, of commerce as applied by the legal science in terms of protecting clients' interests in very large commercial transactions. I learned how to take a company public on the New York Stock Exchange. And through that learning, I guess I I understood uh, what a $100 million legitimate revolving line of credit facility may look like because I negotiated or drafted such documents. And I think that foundation and learning was important for me as a fraud recovery lawyer because I have uh, an understanding of what a legitimate transaction looks like. And by knowing the legitimate, you can more easily detect the, the flawed, the false, the uh, transactions lacking credibility. Um, so it's, it's, the, it's the facility to juxtapose the honest against the dishonest that allowed me to, I think, become a better fraud lawyer later on in, in my career when I started doing that work in about 1991. And do you remember a specific case where you, you know, got really intrigued by the idea of working fraud cases? I have two insights there. One, when I was working for the family office from Canada, uh, on my watch, $400,000 of my employer's money was stolen under my very nose through a trick by uh, a fraudster. So on my watch... I allowed my employer to lose $400,000. I was a young man, 26 years of age, only a two-year qualified lawyer, and I was tricked. Yeah. Um, and uh, it, was, it, was a, it was a simple fraud of switching um, uh, bank account formation cards, the mandate cards for opening a bank account, where my employer was asked to put $400,000 of earnest money deposit into a new partnership account, and the partner opposite undertook to, to open up the bank account on the basis of a, an account mandate card that he had me sign on behalf of my employer, and he signed it in front of me. And what I didn't know is when he left the room, he threw that card away in the trash and then opened up, used a new card without my signature on it so that when the partnership account received $400,000 wire transfer from my employer, he just stole the money. So simple fraud, breach of trust. And wow. I learned a good lesson that day when I was 26. I was humiliated and ashamed. Fortunately, my employer understood that that uh, these things happen, and they, they felt partially to blame for having um, put put me in the, in, in the position of having to deal with someone who they trusted as well. So we were both defrauded in a sense. But yeah. that, that, humili- that humiliation I felt was very visceral and and carries forward even to me personally to this day in psychological terms. So I think that's my first (laughs) visceral experience with fraud, being a victim myself, not me per se, but as someone who was the guardian for a victim. And I let let my guard down and I caused injury to my employer and it was very, very sad for me. So I have some empathy or understanding of what victims go through from personal experience. But I got hired by an English firm of lawyers after my postgraduate studies in London. 
in 91. And they put me in their New York office, and all they did was cross-border litigation. So I could apply what I just learned. Um, and they did a lot of creditors' rights work, bankruptcy, you know, international bankruptcy cases. And we, we acted for some exotic uh, clients like most of the major casinos in Atlantic City, New, New Jersey, and Las Vegas. Whenever large value uh, gamblers would come from Asia and sign, in one case, I acted for Donald Trump uh, and his one of his three casinos at the time when he challenged a gambler called Mr. Kashiwagi to game Baccarat one night. And uh, Kashiwagi came with six million of cash in a bag and Trump gave him a six million dollar credit terms on a marker. Kashiwagi lost eleven point five million dollars that night. And uh, and and Trump, Mr. Trump, uh, instructed our firm to ha- uh, enforce the marker five and five and a half million dollars standing balance on a casino gaming marker in Japan against this uh, very wealthy individual called Akio Kashiwagi, who happened to be the head of the Japanese Akuza. Apparently, I didn't know that at the time, uh, and who was murdered in the middle of the case. But we we, we uh, these the the. Um, so the work I was I, I was exposed to in New York with this English firm allowed me to apply this new learning I had in a practical way, and we I ended up working on a major fraud case for a Canadian bank uh, called CIBC and their securities dealer with Gundy, where there was a massive circular check kite out of the Bahamas. They were victimized. Well, the actual loss profile in the case wasn't this big, but the total value of the fraud in terms of how the check kite worked was $720 million of false checks written, 1,555 checks over 18 months, written by a fraudster in the Bahamas. And what he would do is he would um, play on the float of the check. So he would, or the the, the institution um, mistakenly gave him immediate credit for the value of an item that he would deposit in Montreal to support his trading in the stock, stock market. So he would deposit a check for $10 million on day one of the kite, and it would take a a month for that check to clear the banking system from Montreal to Buffalo, New York, to Miami, to Nassau, the Bahamas. And in that 30-day period, he would trade on the the float, on the concession that he got that there was no hole placed on the value represented by what turned out to be a false check that had no value supporting it. And um, so he would trade on $10 million, and he would margin that up to $20 million. So he have, he's at risk, $20 million in the market, stock market, on on the promise of a check that was worthless. And what he would do is on day 25, he would order the securities he was trading to be liquidated, and he'd maybe gain a couple of million dollars, or he'd maybe in loss. No matter that, he would just simply repay the margin loan. If he was in deficit, he'd write another check. And then he would order that the enough money would be wired to his bank account in the Bahamas just in time, just in time to cover the value of the false item he'd written 28 or 27 days before. So if you write a $10 million false check on day one and you liquidate your stock position on day 25 to cash, you can then day 26 wire the value of the false item down to the Bahamas just in time electronically for credit just before the piece of paper called a check showed up for presentation and and for drawing on the account for payment. So he, he, he got this down to a science. 
this fraudster, and he wrote 1,500 false checks, more more than 1,500, over an 18-month period, totaling $720 million of false checks, allowing him to take risk in the market to the tune of $1.5 billion of risk. Um, and at any one time, he was um, down $65 million at one point to $5 million, and, and the, the institution got lucky my client stopped all of this merry-go-round with the checks when a young analyst got suspicious and convinced his boss in Montreal to bring an end to this special payment concession, allowing the kite to happen. And I got engaged uh, um, by the financial institution to try and recover this uh, $5 million loss they'd suffered through the fraud. Uh, it could easily have been $65 million. They just got lucky. And so I, I surrounded the other side with orders, uh, did an investigation uh, initially secretly. I used a, an investigator who got close to the other side, uh, close enough where the other side started boasting about the fraud and how stupid our client was and how particularly dumb their lawyers were. Um, and I put, uh, we, we provided that evidence to the Chief Justice in the Bahamas who allowed us a special order called an Anton Pillar order Allowing, allowing us to enter the premises of the fraudster's home and office in Nassau to execute a private search and seizure order to obtain incriminating documents or documents that would support our case theory because they were under threat of destruction, we thought, given his dishonesty. We also started a racketeering action in New York. We froze assets in New York and in Florida and in the Bahamas. We wrapped him up in so many orders. It was something, I guess, suffocating for the defendant. And uh, within about a month's time of fighting, he showed up in Toronto and asked to settle. He agreed to pay all the loss back, plus legal fees that the client had incurred on the condition that they agreed to take me away and get, quote, get Kenny off his back. That was the end of my first major exposure to a cross-border fraud case of some, some moment. Wow. Well, I would consider that successful if, if a fraudster wants to get you off their back. Yes, uh, sometimes I'm told I'm not a nice person at all. Uh, one fraudster's lawyer called me an international commercial terrorist who practices extortion by court order. <laughs> I, re- I, I, I wore that as a badge of honor that yeah. if, if we can get the other side's lawyers that upset, then we're probably doing our jobs adequately. Yeah, definitely. Well, you mentioned, I mean, you just mentioned some really interesting cases, and I know you've worked for a lot of different types of companies and people. Uh, you mentioned the working for the Trump Casino, and I know you've done a lot of work on the recovery efforts with Alan Stanford, um, who is no stranger to us here based in Texas. What do you consider one of your most memorable cases that you've worked on? There are quite a few, and I think an important one that we're running now is the is an element of the Stanford International Bank fraud, and this involves non-traditional asset recovery. Traditional asset recovery is go find bank account in Switzerland, freeze it, and recover it, right? Mm-hmm. Or uh, just on August the twenty, for a, a, a client from Asia, we were we froze a thirty-seven meter, fifteen million dollar super yacht uh, registered here in the BVI in a fraud case. So that's traditional asset recovery. Yachts, homes, the mistress's flat on Fifth Avenue, New York, the Swiss bank accounts. 
Non-traditional asset recovery involves the identification of third parties facilitating or enabling fraud and crossing a line of legal responsibility from innocence to culpability or liability civilly. And this continuum of liability can be everything as benign as negligence, meaning when you get into your automobile today, you're not allowed to drive it carelessly into someone else causing them injury. We call that negligence, and you can be sued for damages uh, if you were to do that and be careless when you drive a car. Equally, I like to say, if you drive a bank around and you're running, you're a banker running a bank, and you, it's foreseeable that you could cause loss to people by allowing fraudsters to use your banking system to steal money or hide money. Maybe on some legal systems, you can sue the bank for damages or negligently causing people injury in, as a facilitator or enabler of fraud. In America, you can't do that. Banks are protected by laws in America, and you you have to show that the, fraud, the banker was in on the fraud or had actual knowledge and took over action in the, the fraudsters' uh, activities to harm people before you can sue in a bank in America in these cases as an enabler of fraud. Mm-hmm. But in Canada, in Canada where I'm from, um, under the uh, law of Ontario, we're able to sue a bank there in the Stanford International Bank fraud case for massive damages, we're suing the bank for five billion U.S. dollars of damages. Why? Because that bank, for eight, 17 years, what was called Toronto Dominion Bank (TD Bank), provided the most important correspondent banking services to Mr. Stanford's fraudulently managed bank in Antigua, where he, Stanford, took in deposits from 22,000 people from 141 countries over a long period of time, running from 1991 to 2009. And the total deposits that went into Mr. Stanford's so-called bank was about $10 billion. Now, an important part of this case to know or understand is that this offshore paper bank had no master account to the payment system. Like, it had no access, direct access to fed wire or chips. It couldn't, no one could send it money, and it couldn't send money. Absent access to the payment system in U.S. dollars. And the access point that it got that was the most stable and reliable for the fraudsters involved was TD Bank in Toronto. So it's curiously, a bank in Canada opens up a U.S. dollar account, correspondent bank account, for an Antiguan offshore bank at times when uh, Antigua was known uh, in the banking industry to be a very uh, high-risk money laundering center with low banking regulations. So there were red flags flying all over the place. And we say, on behalf of the victims, that the bank got it uh, AML compliance horribly wrong over 18 years and breached their duty of care that reasonable bankers owe to customers in Canada when providing correspondent banking services of this kind. And so we started that action in 2011 and we fought hard and now it's 2019. And today I'm happy to say 
that we have a three-month trial scheduled to commence on January, I think, the 8th, 2021, against the bank. Discovery's been concluded. We've done our expert reports. They, they amount to more than 600 pages in length. And we're having a trial in what could well be a bellwether for the future on suing banks and holding them responsible for causing horrible losses to victims of fraud. So that's a non-traditional form of asset recovery in a case where that's vital because traditional asset recovery in Stanford will, will only fetch in about, so far I think we've recovered for the uh, insolvency estate that we act for in Antigua, $300 million more or less of value. And a receiver in Dallas maybe the net recoveries there are $150 million. So these folks might get three or four cents on a dollar mm-hmm. of loss in traditional asset recovery. Uh, in that case, well, non-traditional may fetch 30, 40, 50, 60 cents, 70 cents on a dollar. If we're fortunate in our cases, we brought cases against HSBC and now soon another bank in Europe uh, on the same, same kind of theories that I've described with respect to TD Bank. Yeah. What advice do you have for our listeners or fraud examiners who are, you know, maybe new to this field or, you know, working to recover assets, have been doing it for a short amount of time, but faced with those challenges, you know, of, you know, the, the statistics you're up against after the fraud has been committed? What would you say to them? One, whether the fraud is small or large, you still need to spend a little time on and gathering an understanding of the facts, always aspiring to have a 360-degree view of the facts. And when a fraud case first comes to you and you don't know anything about it, it's like being in a dark room with no light. You have to kind of feel your way around, spatially see how big is the room and where do I start? Well, the first thing is to sit the victim down or or it's represent his representative or her representative, like a lawyer. If the case comes to a uh, fraud examiner from a lawyer or from a, from a victim directly, got to sit them down and interview them and gather the basic documents of the fraud. Many fraud recovery cases are solved by reading the papers available to us. Or as I like to say to young fraud lawyers, we have to start by reading the papers at our feet because most cases are solved by simply absorbing and looking critically at the available material. In almost all fraud cases, it involves money and banking. And so the first thing is to know where did the victims send their money, to which bank and which company name or account holder. And we start with that. Uh, number two, if it's a small fraud, so I got a call in 2003 from a victim of a Ponzi scheme, and he was in San Francisco. And he said that he'd lost $500,000, which was his life savings. And I explained to him that that's a tough case for me to work on because our model is effective but very expensive Mm -hmm. and requires critical mass. So I I can't really work. My, My own model is such that I can't help in a case unless it's worth $50 $50 million or more in terms of losses today, although we'll, we can still give advice and, and, and give some coaching, which we do frequently, in smaller dollar value cases, say in the $10 million plus range. But 
I said to this victim who'd lost a half a million dollars, all this life savings. So to him, this was dire. This was absolutely critical that he figure out what could be done to recover. So I said, okay, well, send me 5000 Do you have $5,000? He said, yes, I have that. I can send that to you. He said, well, that will give us enough scope to be able to give you some sound advice. So for a $5,000 retainer, of course, we spent more than that, but it just got the case going. Um, we discovered quickly that that there were another 650 victims, um, and we helped our client to create a website for victims, and that attracted victims to him, and he was able to build a team of, an, of about 30 people who chipped in, each chipped in small amounts, and that was enough for me to figure out um, where some money was from the fraud. And what I did was I looked at uh, all of the payments made by the, the victims that we represented, about 30 people, and we discovered all, all of their money was being wire transferred to a bank offshore in, uh, in I guess it was in, in St. Lucia. And uh, the bank was called Bank Carib, as I recall. And that bank was in liquidation. And I knew the liquidator. So I ran into him at a conference in Miami, and I said, which would are you are you the liquidator of this bank offshore? Yes. Did you freeze any money when you were appointed as liquidator? Yes. How much did you freeze? Oh, about fifteen million dollars. Or is this uh, of that fifteen million? Are you holding any for this company that stole money from my thirty clients? Oh yes, about four million dollars. So there you go. So we were able to recover four million dollars quickly, and that funded a wild campaign that took us to Singapore, courts all over America, Jamaica, Belize, the Bahamas, the BBI, many places. And we took houses and boats and docks and bank accounts. And we stripped the fraudster family clean of every penny they had through the use of uh, that one technique of pulling victims together into a little group and doing a hop, skip and jump routine into an initial recovery which then funded the rest of the recoveries and the whole case that went forward over a number of years thereafter. Yeah. Wow. That's great advice for some of our listeners I know who often deal with the challenge of budget and resources even. So I guess the moral of that story is you have to start somewhere, yeah. start small, and see if you can build up from there. And uh, hit something, hit some low-hanging fruit, um, and then use that to fund. Now, today we have also options. We have hedge funds that will invest with victims to pay our professional fees in meritorious cases that have good chance of recovery. So once you build up a file, you can always help the client get raise some litigation funding today, investigation funding for for these these cases, so that. What looks like an impossibility may not be if you just apply yourself a little bit to the facts. Yeah. I know we've covered a lot, and I think our listeners can find a lot of value in just hearing how you have worked these different cases. But what do you see in the future, and what do you think we're going to start to deal with in the next two to three years as far as asset recovery and even regulations and who holds that accountability? I would say that the trend line is good for uh, people who wish to work in 
the field of representation of victims to recover assets. We are learning new techniques and new targets. And I think in the new trend line will be the area of big data that's going to revolutionize asset finding and asset recovery. I'm working on a case right now for a national government, which was victimized by massive corruption. And um, I'm working with a big data team, which has taken the property ownership records, land title records, company ownership records, directors and officers of companies, ownership records of airplanes, yachts, cars, which are all in the public domain in many countries. And they've taken the data from, well, they've taken data from 160 public registries and put it onto a big database. And they're able to mine that data looking for leads between a target in a case um, and assets that are in the open, lying in the open, of course, usually in names or shrouded in some way in secrecy. But this big data can find links. So, uh, for instance, uh, a fraudster may own a $20 million residence in Miami Beach, Florida, in the name of a BVI company. But a lot of fraudsters are stupid, and they will subscribe for electricity elect electricity supply to their mansion that they purchase with stolen money, oftentimes in their own names, with Florida Power and Light. And you can get access, uh, um, potentially, to the link between uh, the fraudster paying for the electrical bill in a, in a huge mansion and this, uh, this house. And now when you know the fraudster lives in this house, uh, you would go to the British Virgin Islands, open up a discovery application here secretly, which we can do, and gain evidence that the fraudster owns the company. And then we can swoop down in Florida and try and recover the, the, the home as long as it's not a Florida homestead. Well, which we can pierce sometimes if we can show that the homestead was acquired with stolen property. But, but uh, basically, it's piecing together uh, information available publicly online in, in, a, in, a, in a deliberate and intelligent way um, in order to find assets. This can be done today on desktop investigations, which all investigators should be doing. Um, but I'm just saying the trend line is that in the future, more and more of us will have access to big data, which will supercharge desktop investigations by exponential bounds and leaps, in my view. Yeah, definitely. Well, thank you so much. I feel like I could talk to you for two more hours. Well, it's a pleasure. And I, I appreciate the opportunity to speak with, 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 with you and, and the members of the ACFE listening. I first became a, a fraud examiner in 1996. I'm looking on my wall, April 25th, 96. So I share a, 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 a lot of affection for the ACFE and, and its members. And I think uh, that both the, the association and its membership do great work for people and just keep it up, work hard and in a disciplined fashion and win some cases. Yeah, thank you. No, we're... The feeling is mutual. We are very proud to, to have you in our ranks. Okay. All right. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you to Martin, and thank you all for listening today to Fraud Talk. This is Mandy Moody signing off. Until next time.